Hello, fellow friends, family degenerates, and welcome to another edition of Caged Wisdom MMA. Feels really, really good to be back. Uh, we've been out for a while. Well, the UFC has been out for a while. This is their first kickoff for UFC 283. I'm your co-host, Josh. I've got Buck Schlurf over MMA Nerd on the line as well, who'll be going through each and every fight in the main card and also discuss just a couple of the current events that are going on in the UFC at this point in time. So, Buck, give a quick hello out to the audience. What's up, everybody? New year, same nerd. How's everyone doing? Yeah, we're really excited about it. You know, we were, we had a, a conversation right before the call started, and we're just talking about what a weird time it is for the UFC. There's been betting scandals. Dana wife pimp slapped his wife, or Dana White. Jeez, that was... Did I say wife at first? Anyway. Dana wife. Dana wife. Wait, that could catch on. Uh, you know, there's been that, uh, the betting scandal with uh, with James Krause, uh, the turnover of Francis Nagano, who's now going to an unknown promotion. I still don't think that's a great idea on Francis's behalf. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of interesting stuff going on. So, I mean, do you have any anything you want to add to that? Well, um, so the James Krause uh, betting scandal is relevant because that's really starting to affect a lot of fighters, yep. um, including some on this one card. of yeah, yeah, a couple on this card. Um, there was. I made a brief list of a couple of prospects that I wanted to follow this year. And one of them was Jeff Molina, uh, who is now suspended yeah. uh, because of his um, ties to James Krause. And specifically, they um, there are charges of him being connected with uh, that whole betting scandal, him being involved in it more directly than maybe other fighters at the gym. So uh, it's it's really developing. It's really sticky. Do, do you um, know any of the details on that? Well, my, from my understanding is James Krause runs or ran rather this discord server that he would um, sell access to and then share his betting advice. Uh, okay. And he would even go so far wow. as to get people to give them, uh, give him their passwords to DraftKings or things like that. And he would place bets in there uh, for them. Um, it seems counterintuitive and- to me, doesn't it? Right. And then when one of his fighters um, showed up and and there was a huge swing right before he fought uh, f- in favor of his opponent. So uh, the fighter's name was Derek Minner. And right before the Minner fight, a ton of people bet on his opponent to uh, to beat him by um, stoppage in the first round. And then the fight started. Derek Minner got kicked in the leg once very clearly was already injured before the fight started and he got stopped really wow. quickly. And so this connection for uh, his head coach runs a betting league uh, outside of God. his role as a coach and a yeah. fighter actively. Yeah. And so massive then his, conflict of interest already. Mm-hmm. Then the swing in the odds and then a pre-existing injury for his fighter. It was, it was all very, very suspicious. And, and that started this investigation. And betting against your own fighter seems. Anyway, yeah. So that, that was pretty interesting. Also, uh, one thing I forgot to mention that I can't believe I didn't mention. John Jones, Cyril gone. Seriously. John Jones, Cyril gone. March 4th. Yeah. I believe so, yeah. Wow, that is going to be an interesting fight. I think John Jones is opening up as the underdog at this point, which makes perfect sense to mm-hmm. me. But, I mean, to this day, outside of Khabib, I would say that John Jones has absolutely been the best talent to ever grace the, the octagon. I'm curious how this weight gain is going to translate. I don't know what kind of speed he's going to be bringing to the table or if he's going to be able to maintain distance on people that have the same relative length as him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, it's hard to bet against John Jones, but that three-year layoff is no joke. Oh. I, I could talk about this fight all day long and, we, we and will. I'm, <laughs> and I'm not the biggest John Jones no. fan, no, I'm not. uh, quite the opposite. I'm, I'm real sick of him at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm really trying not to let that affect how I'm, how I'm analyzing this fight. But what I've seen from John Jones is that his most dominant, you know, his most dominant performances came in an era when he was fighting like last era's fighters. Yeah. Uh, you know, not his fault, but yeah. Um, 
Yeah. No, right. But I mean, he fought a lot of people who made middleweight like Vitor Belfort, Chael Sonnen. Uh, um, so, so those were all a lot smaller than him. And then in his most recent fights, his last two fights were really, really, really close decisions against fighters who have not done well since. Mm -hmm. um, Tiago Santos is kind of proving to be a very middling, gatekeeping light heavyweight. And um, the other guy? Dominic yeah, Reyes, Reyes has just hasn't. I mean, he's just gotten nuked in his last three fights and has looked awful. Yep. Um, and same Gustafson. And, yeah, he, yeah, maybe it's yeah. because he breaks them. I don't know. It does seem it, like there's a massive maybe. downturn in, in trajectory after a fight with John Jones. Yeah, well, but I, it just seems like John Jones has not been beating people the way he used to beat people. His takedowns don't look nearly as good as they used to look. Um, I think he's slowing down, and I don't think putting on a ton of weight and a three-year layoff yeah, is going to that's be the magic solution that's I agree for this. With you. I mean, I also think there might have been a, a component of boredom and lifestyle issues and maybe even some mm -hmm. borderline mental health issues that were going on that weren't keeping him fully motivated in the gym. Uh, also, that PED. I mean, we don't really know what he was doing uh, during his best run other than the fact that he had the picograms, which I didn't know was a thing until this whole – uh, you know, steroid scandal was kicking off a couple years ago. But anyway, we want to go too deep into that. It's just, it's just a really interesting time. We've been gone for a while, and I think it was important to note, you know, what's what's the landscape look like because the UFC is is a little bit tainted right now. So it's going to be interesting to see how how this year kicks off, uh, what the pay per view numbers are going to look like with the increase in cost. Um, you know, they did the ESPN plus a couple years ago, they raised prices again, and then they're raising prices again this year to $80 per fight. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And it's not a great thing to do when the brand is experiencing some tarnish at this point. But with that being said, let's talk about UFC 283. Uh, there's some really good fights on this. Maybe not the fights everyone wanted to see with, you know, the caveat being Figueredo Moreno. But just to give everyone know, the fights we're going to be talking about is Paul Craig versus Johnny Walker, Lauren Murphy versus Jessica Andrade, Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny, Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno, and Glover Teixeira versus Jamal Hill. So let's go ahead and break this off, kick this off, better yet. Let's talk about the first fight on the main card, Paul Craig versus Johnny Walker. What do you think? Hey, uh, Paul Craig versus Johnny Walker is a wonderful fight, and and the UFC's uh, status at right now being in limbo, it it doesn't matter what organization is putting on Johnny Walker versus Paul Craig. That's going to be a ton of fun. It's also super, super hard to predict anything that's going to mm -hmm. happen in a Johnny Walker fight. He's so unreliable. <laughs> yep. He's he's either the most explosive athletic man that anybody's ever seen and he's an instant threat and can can destroy anybody in seconds or he's the gangliest string bean who's got no defense absolutely no ring generalship and the worst fight iq i've ever seen in my life and it almost seems like there's no in between with him yeah <laughs> so it, i i look for fighters that when he, if i'm gonna to try and predict a johnny walker fight I'm looking for an opponent that also has a low fight IQ that gets emotion, emotional. Ian Kutaleba being the mm -hmm. perfect example of someone that'll take one to give one and tries to get it, get it back when he gets hit. Um, Johnny Walker is undoubtedly one of the best pure athletes in the sport. He is out, or also without question, the lowest fight IQ I've ever seen <laughs> a fight. And, and I see him trying to change that. But the second he gets in the ring, um, you know, with, with the caveat being one that he barely even threw a punch, I think it was after a, a loss. Uh, but even since then, I see him getting into a firefight <laughs> and, uh, and, and he starts making some really loose decisions. And that's really, you know, you talk about Johnny Walker being an unpredictable fight to call. When, on the other hand, we've got Paul Craig, who is arguably the most predictable fight to call. Uh, meaning what is it going to look like? What is, what are his options to win? I mean, it's a clear path for Paul Craig. It basically comes down. He's got 
you know, okay, striking. He's got decent power enough to at least make someone respect him, but that's not really his game. He, he's like, he's almost like a Damian Maya where he's so good in one area. And if, if you haven't watched him before, as a matter of fact, in his fight versus Jamal Hill, um, it was arguably one of the most beautiful offensive guards I've ever seen in my entire life. Where did you watch that fight? I, Paul Craig pulled guard in pulled that guard, fight. As he does that every which time. Which is awesome. Does every time. Yeah. And I, nobody pulls guard in MMA, no. or at least not as their go to method of getting a fight to the ground. No. And it works, it works on some people, but that's, that's really the, the caveat with Paul Craig, right? He's got serviceable striking, he's got mediocre takedowns. Uh, he basically relies on a heavy blitz, some decent kicks to get in, tries to go for a double. Um, but if he gets frustrated after the first round, he doesn't pull that double anymore because he gets exhausted. And so he starts doing these really weird, he'll grab, do an overhook on the, on the arm and try and drag it into guard again. I think that's a, that's a risky proposition against most high level strikers and people that have good takedown defense, which has really been the areas that he's struggled the most. If I look at back at, at his losses, it's Alonzo Menafield, Jimmy Crute. Khalil Roundtree, Tyson Pedro, what do those all have? Those are all guys that have phenomenal power and great takedown defense. Johnny Walker fits that bill, but with a big but on that is Johnny Walker does his best work when he's at striking distance and he blitzes in uh, because, or not even blitzes in because he's got that, that amazing length to him, right? He's just a really, really big uh, light heavyweight. So the way I see this going is I think that 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 Johnny Walker is going to pull a can or a, a patent Johnny Walker move. He's going to get overexcited in the first round if he doesn't land a big shot and knock out Paul Craig, which is really the the best way his he, his biggest chance of winning. I think he's going to try and blitz in. I think he's going to get taken down because he's going to be overextended and off balance. And then I think he's going to be Paul Craig's guard and I think Paul Craig's going to end up taking this with a submission. So I, I, I see all that and I, and I agree with all of it because I think it's, it's very likely to go down that way, but I'm worried about Paul Craig's guard. He is so willing to pull guard and in jujitsu, um, that's a great, perfectly great, acceptable way to begin a match mm-hmm. guard, the, the guard position where you are on your uh, on your back on the ground and your opponent is between your legs and you have your hips in front of them is unique to jujitsu. It's the only sport where you being on bottom is it's still possible for you to be in the advantageous position, mm-hmm. but the addition of strikes in MMA and even in combat jujitsu, if um, you watch any of that silliness, the addition of strikes changes it back to a, a, a traditional sense where if you're on top, you are in a dominant position and Paul Craig can make that, you know, exchange. He can do that cost benefit analysis in his head because he knows he's so dangerous on the ground with his sweeps and his submissions and all of these things. But I think I, I agree. His takedowns aren't the best. And, and I think that if he has to go back to all reliable and try and get a, a, an overhook, if you can even overhook Johnny Walker, um, and try and pull guard. I think Johnny's athletic enough and dangerous enough uh, from the top that, that he's not going to get the chance to take a couple and throw those triangles up or, or one of those things. I'm happy to be wrong. And if it happens, um, I wouldn't be too surprised, but I think in my head, um, pulling guard is just going to be too risky. And if that's Paul Craig's only move, he's going to get pounded out in the first round. So are you taking Johnny Walker? I'm taking Johnny, Johnny Walker. Walker. Okay. I'm taking Paul Craig. Just so you know, um, we're trying not to focus on the betting aspect of this, but it's Paul Craig is plus 160 and Johnny Walker. And this is as of yesterday on DraftKings is minus 190. Yeah, no, but I, I do agree with you. I don't think that pulling guard is really a good option in any aspect of MMA, even if you're you know, the best jujitsu player and have the best ground game or, you know, from the bottom best guard in the sport, which he, he arguably does. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with Johnny Walker, he does these really big movements. He does spins, he does, uh, and, and he gets off balance a lot. And I think that I, there, there's a chance that 
that Paul Craig doesn't even have to try and take him down, that he just falls in with him as he's doing a spin or something like that. And that's where I think he could get into trouble because he overextends himself. Um, I think this is going to be a really, really tough fight to predict because of everything we just talked about. But I have to go with consistency over creativity at this aspect. And I've just seen too many times where I don't know which Johnny Walker is going to show up to the fight. And I know exactly what Paul Craig's going to do when he fights. And I think that there's definitely a way to win. Um, but it's not going to be in the first round. I think it's probably round two, round three, it, you know, if it's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, if it, if it goes to the distance, Johnny Walker tends to get really, really tired. But I think he can do enough in rounds one and two to win the fight if it goes to decision. It really comes down to Paul Craig. Can he get him where he needs to be fast enough to wear out Johnny Walker and get him in a position? You know, can he overextend him enough? But, you know, that, that, that's my take on it. Anything you want to add to that? Uh, it's one of those fights where on the night, I'm not going to even try to analyze what's no. happening. I'm just going to soak it all in yeah. and, and let it happen. It really is. <laughs> it really is it. a fun fight. It's, it's a great fight. It's not, neither of these guys are going to be competing for a, a belt probably ever. This is likely the apex of their career. Uh, that mm-hmm. being said, for the 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 MMA aficionado, what a great fight to watch. What a great fight. All right. So the next one we're going to talk about is Lauren Murphy, who's plus 390. I believe, is she the biggest? Yeah, she's the biggest underdog on the card. Taking on Jessica Andrade, who's minus 490. God, I got to get my handwriting better. Um, what are your thoughts on this fight? That's appropriate. Those odds are right. <laughs> Jessica Andrade right. is monstrous. She's, I'm such a sucker for Jessica Andrade. Let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite fighters, standing arm triangle in her last fight. Um, she's had two wins at flyweight now. Uh, both of them are first round stoppages due to strikes. Uh, she's just a tank. Picks people up, slams them right down on her on their head. Um, Bate Estaca is her, um, nickname. It's Portuguese for pile driver. <laughs> Cause she picks people up and slams them down. So oh, she often. beat Rosna Molanas uh, too. Yeah. So really, uh, capable grappler. Um, she competes in grappling tournaments, um, in the United States and down in Brazil all the time, uh, still actively, um, awesome top pressure, thunderous power, yeah. um, really good power. And and her and she's getting better and better at um she's making her own style that she's always had more and more effective. In her last fight against um Ramos. her last fight at flyweight, um she was fighting Cynthia Calvillo. Okay. and yeah, she was crowding Calvillo, uh, moving her against the cage, and um using awesome footwork to stay right in front of her. She wasn't following. She wasn't chasing. She was cutting her off and she didn't even have to throw a lot of strikes to do it. She's got really imposing presence and she makes such a big show of the, of these big power hooks in these hands that she can set up the opportunity to take these big chopping leg kicks, Mm -hmm. which she's gotten really good at. And once she lands a couple of those, the evasive footwork starts to become less reliable. And then the hands come back as a bigger threat and she can start to do some real damage. Um, She's a ton of fun to watch. Yeah. Lauren Murphy um, is coming off a win over Misha Tate at flyweight Tate. um, After a retirement beat, uh, she beat, Oh, Marion Renault or someone like that, who then retired and then Tate went down to flyweight, uh, got beat by Lauren Murphy and then retired. It, Has she retired? My Officially. point is, is that Misha Tate isn't a great last win. Um, and before that, she um, lost a title shot pretty decisively to Valentina yep. Shevchenko. But then again, who hasn't? Yep. Um, Lauren Murphy being ranked um, number four at flyweight is more of a mark against flyweight than it is like a credit to her. I'm glad you said it. I was, I was thinking yeah. it's just, it's, it shows the state right now in the immaturity of some of the women's divisions. There's just not a big uh, pool of talent outside of the top two or three is my take on it. It may be, yeah, maybe maybe at, at, at 145 there is, 
But when you get down and, and even at 115, there's some some decent top four, top five. But after that, there's a massive drop off. And and Laura Murphy is really a case in point, if I remember correctly, and you might know more on this, but Laura Murphy got into this sport really, really late. And I think she got into it just as someone that wanted to train jiu-jitsu. And I think she was like a mom and so on. And then, you know, fell in love with her coach. It was, it was one of those types of stories. I, I don't know enough. I, I don't know enough to confirm or deny, but it is one of those things where she did sort of find the sport later in life. I mean, she's 39 um, years old. Yeah. And that's, a, that's up there for lighter weights. Um, it really relies on you being that's fast up there for professional you know. athletes. <laughs> yeah. Well, general. yeah. For anybody, yeah, for anybody, uh, huh. pretty much the only people that could get away with being North of 40 are heavyweights. Um, yeah, for the most, for the most part. part, absolutely. And, um, Lauren Murphy's on the tail end of her career. She's, I mean, even though she's, um, at the end of her career, she still doesn't have nearly as many fights as Andrade does. Jessica Andrade, I think has the most stoppage wins of any female in the UFC. I think she's got the most wins. Uh, well, she's got 23 wins. Um, she's got seven via tap out. I don't have the exact number mm-hmm. that she's got in TKOs, but I know, I know the number's high. And the reason I wrote down the, the, the finishes via submission is because you don't even think about that mm-hmm. with her. If you mm-hmm. ever watch her fight, I mean, she is extremely strong, probably the strongest, uh, I've seen at flyweight. Well, I don't know. Cause she's not a natural flyweight. I know Lauren Murphy is definitely a natural flyweight. Um, Jessica Andrade is a straw weight as she should be she's like five foot one yeah she should um, she be. started competing in the ufc when they only had a bantamweight division god that's crazy um, so she had to fight all the way up at 135 uh so she was fighting girls like raquel pennington who now uh flirts with 145 yep. god, um that's crazy man yeah as uh jessica Andrade is one of three fighters in the ufc uh and the only female to have stoppage wins in three divisions Great stat. That was a yeah, great right? stat. Good job, MMA nerd. Uh, Jared Cannonier and Conor McGregor are the other two. Wow, look at that. This is why we brought him on. Yeah. This is the exact reason why. <laughs> but but back to the fight. You know, with, with Jessica Andrade, she's got great ground game. She's got great takedowns. She does her best work when she's up against the cage. She's basically a power striker who stays in the pocket, uses a lot of hooks to get in there, gets another opponent, especially ones that she can overpower up against the cage either shoots for a double to clamp her, her hands together, but mostly in a high crotch, dumps them off, mm-hmm. takes them down, or she slams them down. Um, she's been doing this over and over against top-level talent since she started. And obviously, she's been you know punching up quite a bit for most of her career. On the other half, we've got Lauren Murphy. Lauren Murphy is a, a late player to the game. Uh, she's got good striking with decent power. It's uh, She's definitely not someone that I would consider you know that could put out a top tier talent in the UFC at this point. Uh, she seems to be really heavily reliant upon pairing the first jab and then doing a couple, like a one, two counter shot, but her, her boxing is still a, a relative, relatively rudimentary. And if she gets on the ground, she's good from the top. Um, you know, she can get away with some of her, her positional changes against mid tier talent, but I don't see it against uh, Jessica Andrade. I think this fight is going to be, extremely lopsided. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that Lauren Murphy is going to get hit a few times early. I think she's going to get tentative just like she did against uh, Valentina Shevchenko and her ability to adapt. That's one of the things I wrote down as, you know, watching some of her fights, her vil- ability to adapt when she's put in positions that weren't part of her training regimen. They don't seem to, to come out, you know, in between rounds, there's not a lot of adjustments that are made. Uh, it seems she she can follows that formula throughout the entire fight, and if it's working, then she gets the win. If it's not working, then it's going to be a clear dub or a clear loss. And against top tier talent, which I consider Jessica Andrade in that bubble cusp of the top tier, um, you know, flirting more on the inside than on the outside, just depending on how her last performance or her last couple of performances mm-hmm. have been. Whereas Lauren Murphy, I think, gets here because there's not enough. Uh, legitimate gatekeepers at women's flyweight quite yet. Taking Jessica Andrade, and I think she's going to stop her early. I do too. 
Same, same thing. All right, so now we get into what can be three amazing fights. Uh, we're going to talk about the first one, which is Gilbert Burns, who's minus 410 versus Neil Magny, plus 330. Uh, by the way, those odds seem skewed, don't they? Do you think Burns is really a minus 410? I I am very confident. 410 seems a little excessive. That seems excessive. Uh, but me. I am very confident in Gilbert Burns. Neil Magny always is ruining things for me. But um, why don't you kick us off with that, on that note? So, um... Gilbert Burns, what an incredible fighter. Yeah. Now that Damian Maya and Jacare uh, Souza have retired and moved on from the UFC, Gilbert Burns has to have the most like accomplished jujitsu career of any fighter in the UFC. Um, outstanding submission grappler. Um, r- incredible in the gi, too. Not that that's as relevant. And then dynamite in his hands. He hits so hard. He's so fast. He's so strong. The striking threat is so. I mean, he is such a dangerous striker that people forget that his primary uh, skill is jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And that's a good place to be. And is he the most technical striker in the world? No, but I, he, he's not untechnical either. No, he's got good he's base not fundamentals. Applying- he's just, he loops too much. He does loop. He does loop. And and Neil Magny has great straight technical jabs. Yeah. He sticks and moves and he's he's Neil Magny has all the fundamentals and he does them all very, very well. He's also taller than Burns. He's a lot rangier. 80 inch range and, on that guy. Can you believe that? Yeah. So that's all in his favor. And so, yeah, he's probably the more technical striker. Is he the better striker? You know, that only that kind of comes down to what you define is better. Gilbert Burns has a bunch of one shot knockouts. And I don't think Neil Magny has no any like lights out knockouts that I can, you know, think of off the top of my head. Um, he does a lot of like volume and damage and then will finish with a submission kind of later in, in the fight. Yeah. Um, that's what he just did to his last opponent was Daniel Rodriguez. Um, pieced him up. Uh, and I think he got him with like a Darce choker or something like that. At, um, later in the fight, but before the D rod fight, uh, Neil Magny fought Shavkat Rachmanov, who is this, the one to watch. That's for sure. Oh, he's incredible. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, watch Shavkat Rachmanov. He's a welterweight. He's undefeated he's fighting. Next he's like in a couple weeks, isn't he? He, he, I think he is. He's 15 and 0, all submissions. He or all finishes rather. Um, he's never been to a third round. He's the real deal. And he's incredible. And his grappling is next level. And as good as Neil Magny is, and is as you know, smart and as reliably talented and as well versed in the fundamentals and all of the protections that those give you as Neil Magny is. He wasn't going anywhere. He was stuck on the bottom for pretty much the entire second round um, and didn't get didn't get anything from it. And I, you know, just going down Magny's resume, he has uh, more losses by submission than any other method. Um, and he has kind of he's gotten out grappled. That's the, the way that people get a hold of him. He lost to RDA, who was an incredible wrestler uh, at even at welterweight, um, he lost to Michael Chiesa. He lost to Shavkat Rachmanov. I, I, he gets controlled on the ground, and that's the way he loses. And Gilbert Burns yeah. just has such an incredible pedigree in jiu-jitsu. And um, he he gets around this huge gap in a lot of jiu-jitsu fighters' skill set, which is takedowns. Gilbert Burns can get fights to the ground reliably big blast doubles, cage wrestling and trips. Yeah. Like there's so many fighters. Brian Ortega comes to mind as a huge one. Um, Ryan Hall, a little bit in that sort of range. Mackenzie Dern, such grappling threats, but because their primary sport was jujitsu that doesn't focus on takedowns. Enough. I was just about to say that that's where burns. He's legit, legit takedowns. Le- yeah. And that's Especially what sets him cage. apart. And, and so when Burns wants to fight to the ground, he can typically get it there. Um, 
and I think he's going to be able to drag Magni down. Is Magni going to put up a reasonable fight? Absolutely. He's, again, super technical, super accomplished, super experienced. Um, he's got very... <sighs> rote is not the is the wrong word, but he's got by-the-book striking, and when you do it well, you get really good results from it. Um, I just don't think that's going to... Yeah be enough to keep Burns off of him for three rounds. No, and that's uh, what he's going to have to do. Keep him safe. I mean, Magny, you know, with his 80-inch reach, and he's, he's got really I – mean, he's a plus. He's a plus in all aspects of the game. Um, he just happens to be going against a guy that's a plus-plus in two or three aspects of the game. Uh, you know, with, with Magny – It's a great way to put that. Yeah, with, with Magny – thank you. Uh, with Magny, no one really wants to fight him, and and there's a reason for it. First of all, he comes up and he beats a lot of up and coming talent, right? He's not a gatekeeper, but he's damn good. And second, he doesn't have a personality that is marketable. And so unless you're a big fan of the UFC, there is a very, very good chance that you haven't heard of Neil Magny. And it's because he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He's not very um, outgoing. He's, he's an introvert, doesn't do much in regards to media. Um, so it's a dangerous fight for Gilbert Burns. But that being said, I think this is really designed to be a showpiece somewhat for Burns to get him back up um, for another shot, either at the title. Cause I know there's a lot, there's a lot of, of stuff going on at 170 right now. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, to, to your point, Magni is going to need to keep this at range. He does his best when he's keeping this at, 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 at the end of his boxing range. Um, he's good enough to throw in angles. He's good enough to keep himself off the cage. But I, I believe Burns with his style has got great leg kicks. He's got really heavy power. And this is one thing that, that Magni uses as a weapon. Oftentimes it's not going to work against Burns is the fact that he's got an incredible cardio tank or incredible gas tank. Burns is a unique talent in the fact that not only does he throw hard and he pushes forward, but he also lasts the entire fight. I mean, when you look what, what he did against, uh, uh, Chimaev, right. Uh, basically didn't take his foot off the gas for the entire fight and was still able to, you know, land big shots, get him up against the cage. Well, kind of get him up the cage. And it was one, God, was that a hell of a fight? So the way I see this going is Magni's going to start out trying to keep it at range. Uh, Burns is going to be looking to throw in those big power haymakers early on. He's going to hit him up with a couple calf kicks. He's going to end up cutting off Magni because you can only do that for so long. He's going to get Magni up against the cage. He's going to bust in on a double. He's going to pull a high crotch. He's going to get him down to the ground. He's going to control him. He's going to throw some good ground and pound. And I believe that's going to be wash, rinse, repeat for, a, for three rounds. That's the way I see this going. Think Burns by decision? I do think Burns by decision. Yep. I think that's a I think that's a pretty smart bet. You know, it was important to note you were saying I think they gave Gilbert Burns this fight to get some shine on him. Doesn't need a whole um, lot of shine though. I mean, he is excited. Sure doesn't, but I yeah. I did notice um now that I'm looking at this card, it's kind of obvious. Um there is a Brazilian in every single fight on the main card and this fight is the first fight back in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. That's um right. in a in a little bit. I had that on my notes. So, so I was going to say it up front, but I didn't. Thank you. Yeah, Jessica Andrade, huge favorite. Gilbert Burns, huge favorite. Yep. Johnny Walker, not a huge favorite, but a favorite nonetheless. Um, and then the two title fights both have Brazilians in them as well. I think um, the UFC knows that it would be very good for the atmosphere in that building uh, if if Brazil got a clean sweep on the first card back in Rio. Yeah, I think that is the plan. Uh all right, so let's move on to what I believe is, you know, there's not a, there's not many times that I can ever look back and be excited for a trilogy. I mean, sometimes it happens, but usually it's like one and one or whatever. Mm -hmm. what, what do you even call this? A quadrigy? <laughs> I, you know, I was just listening today to word for this? Paul Felder and Michael Chiesa talk about this. I think it's... Uh, a tetralogy, a tetralogy is what it's called. Really, tetralogy. God, yeah, I think off my radar. Uh, it's a it's hearsay. Um, but I think quadrilogy is not accurate, and it's a tetralogy. But I think it should be accurate. Um, I think quadrilogy should makes be. more sense. Who's ever heard of a tetralogy? No, but a quadrilogy makes. Anyway, all right. So Davidson Figueroa, who's minus one ten, 
taking on for the fourth time Brandon Moreno, who is also minus one ten. Your thoughts? I those odds are right too. I mean, look at the record; they're they're spot on. They're one one and one, and 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 it goes even further than them being one one and one. Um, Davidson Figueredo got finished in the second fight. So you might say, yes, they're one, one and one, but Brandon Moreno actually has the, the finish. So that puts him ahead. But the first fight was only a draw because there was a accidental cup shot and, um, Figueredo got docked a point. And so he, without that accidental cup shot, he would have won the first fight too. So, it, I mean, they are so evenly matched, and they both make very good adjustments in in each fight, in each subsequent fight that are so ta- tailored specifically to this opponent. They um, they have both done amazing, amazing fights um, back to back to back. Uh, Brandon Moreno took a quick little hiatus to win the interim belt um, when Figueroa was injured. Uh, won it off of Kai Kara France. And then he brought himself right back up into the title picture. The, so the only other thing that, that has changed significantly, and we can get into the X's and O's of this in just a moment, but the James Krause situation that we talked about right at the beginning of this podcast um, has affected Brandon Moreno. For the Kai Kara France fight, Brandon left his camp and went to Glory MMA in... Kansas City, Missouri, I think it is. Um, And he had an incredible showing and showed some new wrinkles and just and looked great. Finished um, Cara France in the third round um, and then started his camp for this fight with Glory MMA. And then the news came out that there was this scandal and the UFC put out an official notice. and said that if you are actively competing in the UFC, you cannot compete and cannot fight if you are continuing to be associated with James Krause. So you have to go to a different gym or we're not going to let you fight. Big deal. So right at the beginning of his camp, Brandon Moreno has to move everything. And I didn't even find out where he was going until this week. Um, he's been um, at Fortis MMA with Safe Sayud down in Texas. A um, couple of fighters you might have heard of, Jeff Neal. Um, Ryan Spann, who we talked about in our last uh, podcast. But those I guys, aren't, he, those aren't ones that you can really spar with. So I wonder what kind yeah, of talent. Yeah, they're a lot bigger than him. I, I don't know who they brought in. Diego Fajeda, maybe. I don't know how many smaller guys are in that gym. I don't know if he needs them. I um, think he needs them. So, so I don't. Yeah. So I don't know how can't his get the preparation same looks has with been. The big guys. It's just a totally different. I don't game. know. So that is. That is in Davison's favor, I think. And there are a couple of other things in his favor, but I there's some things that I just can't shake. Um, we talked about aging out of your prime um, for the Lauren Murphy fight, and Davison Figueredo is now 35. Um, that's not quite as old, but still at 125 pounds, the second you start to slow down, you're going to run into a lot more problems than you would if you were fighting up at middleweight, light heavyweight or heavyweight as well. Brandon Moreno's coming in. He's like 31 now, 20. I think he might even be 29. Like that's he's in his prime, the perfect age. Yeah. He's in his, in his prime. He's been to the UFC, left the UFC, came back, won a belt, moved gyms. He's brilliant. Uh, he hits super hard. He hits hard because he sets his shots up so well. He's a very, very intelligent fighter. Um, when Brandon Moreno is not actively competing, you don't hear it, but he is the um, commentator. He's a Spanish language commentator. So he's at every card. Um, he's in his own booth like Joe Rogan, John Anik, uh, Paul Felder, Michael Bisping, those guys. He's in his own booth with... Um, Santiago Ponzinibbio, I think. Um, and and they do all the commentary in Spanish. So they're very, um, very skilled in analyzing fights, watching tape, adjusting techniques, recognizing techniques in the moment. He uh, That's gotten him all the way to the belt. And 
And Davison has a couple of bad habits. You know, Davison Figueredo fights very, a very unique style, and it is exploitable if you are as smart as Brandon Moreno is. And that's why these fights have just been so back and forth because, you know, being smart enough to recognize, being capable enough to execute are not the same thing. And Brandon Moreno has been able to do both, but they're getting those two things to work together is, is a huge task. And Davis and Figueredo's power, his speed, what Figueredo does is sort of the same thing that um, Jessica Andrade does that I was saying before, where he has a physical presence that he uses to corner fighters or back them up against the cage. And then he hangs his hands all the way down by his hips. They're super low. He does that so he can frame off uh, of opponents who shoot in for a takedown. He, he can use his hands to like, uh, counterbalance himself. He does something because he's a flyweight, a figure eight of this is, um, that not a lot of other fighters can do is, um, change levels like dramatically at, at as feints. Davidson Figueredo in his big stance with his fist wound up and locked back, ready to throw a huge haymaker can like squat really quickly for lack of a better word and totally drop all the way down to his ass basically and like reach out and touch your ankle and then pop right back up and be ready to strike again and and the amount of height and level that he can change so quickly because they're so light down at flyweight um is really phenomenal reminds me of my and yeah 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 and yeah they they just he can move so so well and using all these setups these like fake uh ankle picks and these big level changes that's how he sets up these big power strikes rather than um he's also a good counter strike rather than using like mm-hmm, rather than using like a series of jabs like closing the distance with a triple jab um and you know countering and recountering or something like that, he messes with heights and positions and, and timing Figueredo punches out of, out of tempo a lot, which is really cool where he'll wind up with this huge shot swing miss, but remain in his like good striking stance and like hesitate just a beat so that, the punch should have already landed before he throws it. And then he can kind of punch on the dodge that the opponent makes, you know, getting out of a punch that they think is coming, but isn't. And, and you have to really study tape for a long time and be a very smart fighter to, to recognize those sorts of patterns and that kind of movement and, and develop a strategy. And you have to have the ability to implement them, which is what most and, and that's, you know, that's the difference. That's why we can analyze it. And then. And absolutely can't yeah, do it. Yeah, can't do it. So there, there's a reason why we say that it's it's hard to prepare for them like that. And it's not that you can't. It's not like no one in the UFC can analyze that, professionally analyze that in a second. But to get your fighter mm-hmm. to overcome that, it's a different thing. I mean, the way that I see Figueredo is he is a plus-plus athlete. And every facet of his game is also plus-plus. So when I think about. You know, what is it going to take to win against him? I mean, he's got good cardio. He has, without a doubt, the best power in the flyweight division. He's got great submission skills. He's got great submission defense. He's got good counters. So what are you going to do to take that away from him? And really, the only thing I've seen is when Brandon Moreno kept pressing against him and became the bully, and he was pushing Figueredo back, which is not an area that he's used to being into. Didn't allow him to get his counter shots off, allowed him to get taken down a couple times, eventually to get to get choked out. And that's where I think with Brandon Moreno, where he really uh, excels is number one is his adaptability. He's got tremendous fight IQ. He's got heart that you really can't even, I mean, you can't measure heart, period, but you can't measure when you when I take a look at him versus anybody, um, he's got the best heart that I've ever seen in the UFC. Um, just an absolute 
unwilling to quit in any facet when the, when, you know, he's on the ropes, et cetera, et cetera. So Moreno is a really good boxer that's come along in the last four to five years. I would say before that he was primarily a grappler, got a lot of his wins via submission. Uh, he's really good at staying on the outside, puts a lot of weight on his front foot, which has made him more adept to getting uh, calf kicked, which we saw in his last loss to Davison Figueredo. Uh, I think, you know, Buck was telling me there's been some changes. We'll get in that in just a second, but, you know, to, to continue to the breakdown. Um, but with Moreno, what he does a really good job of is waiting on the outside, kind of lulling people and then blitzing in. And he does a lot of the body, body head shots. And so he gets people to bring their hands down and he hits them in the head uh, or hits them in the face and does a lot of his best punches, probably his uppercut does a lot of the lead uppercut. Um, but he also will sometimes go in and work his jab over and over again to get people to bring their hands up, blitz into a body shot, go up to an uppercut. They'll bring their hands back up and he goes and he blasts a double leg. And then when he gets you on the ground, he's just an exhausting guy to deal with. Um, you know, I, I think that Figueredo got pretty tired against Moreno the last time they fought. So I think that Brandon Moreno is going to have to fight a perfect fight like he did in the second, uh, the second fight of the trilogy to be able to beat Figueredo. I think Figueredo is coming off a little bit of, uh, of time away. I don't know if there's going to be any ring rust. He's 35. Those are the things that I can see that are really against him. Um, thing I see for him is I think he's a little bit better and than Moreno in every facet of MMA at this point with the, at the age gap and the experience. Um, and I think that him being, uh, in Brazil fighting, you know, in front of his home crowd is going to give him some extra energy to put on a really good show. Uh, this is without a doubt, the most difficult fight to pick. Uh, I think Brandon's path to victory is really, uh, uh, you know, blitzing in, getting him tired, doing a lot of body shots, a lot of, of, of head movement to throw him off. And then he's going to have to push him back, trying to get him up against the cage, get some takedowns and break his will. Uh, I originally came in saying Moreno, Buck, I don't know, man. I think I'm going to have to go Figueredo. I think I'm going to change on the spot. I do. You know what? I think that I, I think I'm also going to go Figueredo, but I think more importantly, I think, if you or anybody listening to this podcast, if you happen to in, to encounter somebody who can confidently pick yeah. this fight, I'll, I'll, that's somebody not worth trusting because yeah. <laughs> they're lying to you. They're trying to sell you something. Uh, you hit a great point when you talked about gas tank. I think body work and um, and ring generalship, like ring craftsmanship that is aimed at draining energy is going to be super, super important for both fighters. I think that's going to be a, a real key in this fight. Davidson Figueredo's style just uses a lot more energy than Brandon Moreno's does. He has huge swings and he can get away with those huge swings because I mean, it, even though he's swinging huge, he's still pretty lightweight. And he's so in position that doesn't too. take as much energy. It doesn't take as much energy as, as Nganu does or someone like that when they're, throwing as hard as they can um but it is still less efficient than brandon moreno so what figueredo needs to do is when he's throwing those quick chopping leg kicks or taking these big shots to the head he needs to include his body work he needs big hooks to the body he needs to engage in in all three levels when he's striking and what he needs to do that because he can't afford to end up in the fifth round with Moreno having more energy than him. Uh, even though his style is less efficient because Moreno can take a tremendous shot. And if Moreno's doing the same thing, putting a lot of pressure on the body, forcing you to uh, forcing Figueredo to, to walk backwards because yeah. going backwards is just so much more tiring in a fight than, than setting the pace and moving forwards. If Moreno can keep all those things up front kicks to the body it, hooks to the body, that. mid combination, yep. that sort of thing. If Figueredo is tired in the fifth round, those big athletic strikes aren't going to hit quite as hard. And as hard as Figueredo can hit, he needs to hit exactly that hard because if he gets any weaker, Brandon Moreno is just going to take those shots. And in the fifth round, go hell for leather. I know that Figgy's tired. I can get in there and start throwing 
you know, throwing big bombs. That's exactly what happened at the end of the fifth round in their last fight. They just kind of knew this is it. I don't have to save any more energy. I can just get in there and bang. And if Figueroa's not at least close to full, or you know, if he's not at you know at or near where Brandon Moreno's energy is, he's gonna get swarmed. Yeah. Well, so yeah, it's but I mean, that's be- that's assuming that that Moreno won one of the first two rounds, which I don't expect to happen. So it's really going to come down to round three at that point uh, on what's going to have to happen. Uh, Cause I don't see either of these guys putting the other way at this point, but all right, let, let's, let's move on. Let's go to the, let's go to the final one. So we're both picking Davidson Figueredo and honestly, Davidson Figueredo hesitantly. Yeah. But I yeah. still believe so Buck, I'm going to give you some credit on you. You swayed me a little bit on that one because I, I like, Brandon Moreno so much just as a as a human, it's hard for me to pick against him, but I'm going to. So with the next fight, that. next fight, main fight, Glover Teixeira, who is I believe minus or plus one hundred five, versus Jamal Hill, who is minus one twenty five for the interim, not the interim, the, for the uh, the light heavyweight belt at this point, the vacant the vacant belt. belt. Yeah, that yeah, there's so much tumultuousness. Is that a word? There's, there's Unrest. Unrest. Yeah. Okay. There's a better one. All right. So once you, once you kick us off on this one, this one's not as hard for me. Uh, and I think the odds are backwards. Even, yep. um, I'm pretty confident in Glover to in this. Um, I mean, Jamal Hill is very athletic. He's very fast. Um, he strikes at range. He's got really good range, really clean boxing. And what, what Jamal Hill does really well um, he did this for the uh, Tiago Santos fight is he can get very good combinations off and get a very consistent striking game without over committing uh, his weight in a way that makes him susceptible to takedowns. Uh, he can strike in a very like good defensive grappling sense. Um, and he's going to need that uh, because if he doesn't stand a chance against Glover on the ground. Um, can he stop a good takedown? Yes. Is he good at framing and 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 pivoting and, and circling out our way? Yes. Jamal Hill can do all of those things. Yes, he hits very hard. Yes, he's fast. Yes, he's younger. Um, uh, Glover Teixeira's main pra- training partner right now is the middleweight champ, Alex Bejeda, um, who is better. Bigger, faster, stronger, yeah. more technical, more talented in pretty much every single way than Jamal Hill. Um, I know he's a middleweight. That's crazy to me. Um, Alex Bejeda is bigger than most light heavyweights. He's giant. And if he's training with Glover, uh, Jamal Hill's not going to do anything that Glover hasn't seen every single day that he trains. I don't think he can uh, either. I don't think he has a yeah. skill set. I mean, he's 13 and one. He basically got thrust into this opportunity. His last three three wins is uh, Tiago Santos, which you already discussed, is a fading fighter. Johnny Walker, who's we've already discussed, has the lowest fight IQ in the history of the sport. And then he law or he won against Jimmy Crew and then Paul Craig. Not one of those is anyone I would consider to be top tier talent. Now Teixeira, last three fights, four fights, Yuri Prohashka, which was one of the biggest barn burners I've ever seen for a light heavyweight fight, incredible. incredible. Uh, beat Jan Blahovich, beat Tiago Santos. Uh, be Anthony Smith, who I even consider better than anything that uh, that that Hill's done at this point in his career. I don't think that Hill is ready for the limelight at this point. Much to what you were saying earlier, Hill is really fast. He's young. He's got good hands, good power. His grappling needs to be worked on. He's good at darting in and out. Does really good from from kicking range. Uh, but if he gets pressured, which is really to share a specialty, is to uh, push people back with that that good boxing. He's got good, really, really good boxing, and he likes to fight within boxing range. And so he's got great ring generalship. I like that word. I'm gonna use that more often. And he's there able to back up people against the cage and put them to their fight. From there, he usually tucks his head and throws a lot of hooks. That's really his his best punch in my evaluation. He's got a great jab, but when he gets in near the clinch, he's doing a lot of the of the hooks up against the cage. He'll then put his head up on their chin, grab them, and take them for a ride um, up against the cage, which is his specialty. Um, it takes a really special fighter, even though Teixeira is, is thirty or excuse me, forty three years of age, to beat that. Um, 
and he's done it against guys that are bigger. He's done it against guys that are stronger, and he's done it against guys that are faster. The only thing I I think that Cherry really has a problem against at this point is Father Time. If something's happened in the last six months that you know we we don't know because that stuff happens pretty quick, uh, where people just they lose their advantage and some, you know lose their 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 speed it, for some reason. You know, forty on it, it happens really really fast. Uh, and on top of that, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I don't want to comment on people's body types, but but Hill does not. He almost looks like he could drop down a weight. Have you noticed that? He doesn't cut weight. I just I was just listening to an interview earlier today. He does he doesn't really cut weight at all. So he's a small um, he's a small two hundred five er. He absolutely could make um, middle weight. Um, so there's something to be said for not cutting weight and and not having to. Um, re, you know, rehydrate and and fight after being so freshly depleted. Uh, but if you are trying to win a, 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 you know, if you're trying to win a striking exchange, it's it behooves you to be faster. Um, and being lighter means you're faster. But if you're trying to win a grappling exchange, it's yeah a huge benefit to, to be comes big. Into the cage at. Yeah, like if he makes 205, 215. Teixeira weighs 220, 225. He big. He's big. He's a big. So, and Teixeira's mastered this like old man style of yeah. fighting. It's so dirty. It's really messy. Skilled. He closes yeah. distance. He throws hands. He drags people down. Every single part of it hurts. I haven't seen a can opener. <laughs> Uh, in MMA outside of Glover Teixeira. If you don't know what a can opener is, he did it to Jan Blachowicz when he won Coleman. the title. Um, from your from your opponent's guard, so your opponent has your uh, their legs around you and they you know uh, have their hips in between you and them and they can frame out, um, you would reach over their head with both hands and like pull their head back into their own chest and squish them. And it's just nasty. It's... I don't even think it's allowed in sport jujitsu. It's just horrible. It's mean. There's no escape from it. It's just so much pressure on your neck. It's just mean, nasty tricks that Glover's full of because he's just been doing this for so long. I think this is going to be his 43rd fight. Um, and I think it's going to be a swan just, song too. Yeah, I think he's just going to retire the champion. In Brazil, in Brazil, absolutely. He's going to push Jamal to the cage. Jamal's going to crack him a couple of times, but um, Teixeira knows how to survive those. He's got awesome survivability. He's going to get a hold of a leg or get a hold of a, um, you know, a body lock and drag the fight to the ground, and Hill's not going to be able to get up. It's yeah. just he's just going to be out of his depth, and he's going to get. I mean, smashed. look at look at his last two fights: Yuri Prohachka, who we we already talked about. Jan Blachowicz. He was winning, he was that, winning fight. that fight. If that fight went 30 seconds longer, he, he would have won. beaten him. Which was really unexpected. And let's compare, not in detail, but Yuri Prohoshka versus Jamal Hill. And it's it's nonsense. They're not even, I don't even feel like they're in the same league, to be candid with you. Now, maybe it's just because I haven't seen enough of Jamal Hill or he doesn't have enough of a resume. Or maybe it's because of the fact when I look at him, he looks like he's a little bit soft. In there, yeah, he's fast, good fighter, hits hard, but he just doesn't look. He doesn't have the look, and it seems to me that the people at the top of the heap typically have the look, and the people at the top of the heap typically are going to be cutting some weight. There's not a lot of guys that go in there that are able to compete without really cutting any weight at all, just because the size discrepancy when you throw in the grappling, just like you said. So, uh, Hill's path to victory is pretty clear. Keep this on the outside pepper Teixeira and try and get him to, you know, drop his hands for a counter and then put him out with maybe a spinning elbow, head kick, uh, or like a counter hook seems far-fetched to me, uh, with Teixeira it's, it's, you know, wash, rinse, repeat as usual. If he's able to cut off the ring, uh, you know, get into fighting distance with Hill, get him up against the cage, clinch, do the dirty boxing, and then do repeated takedowns and getting Hill tired, which he's never going to, he's not going to be used to, to dealing with that type of pressure on top of him. Even if he's able to get up and escape, it just takes so much wind out of your sails when you're constantly getting and fighting someone off your back. You might get a couple of early successes, but I see Teixeira taking this 
probably via submission in round three. I can't believe the odds that are the way they like are. That sounds like a solid pick to me. Yeah, I, I think it's silly. Um, yeah, I think it's silly to have Teixeira as the underdog. Well, I have a question I'm, for I'm you. I'm very, very confident. Was James Krause training any of these guys? Because that might <laughs> that might show why the, the odds are skewed right now. It just doesn't seem Krause right. Strikes, yeah, again. strikes again. So anyway, yeah, I think, you know, just to recap, Paul Craig uh, versus Johnny Walker. I'm taking Paul Craig. Uh, um, you're taking Johnny Walker. Lauren Murphy versus Jessica Andrade. We're both taking Jessica Andrade. Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny. We're both taking Gilbert Burns. Uh, Davison Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno. We're both taking Figueredo. And then we're both taking Glover Teixeira over Jamal Hill for the vacant light heavyweight title. I'm calling a Brazilian sweep. That is a Brazilian sweep. You're right. No, no, it's not for you. For you, it's a Brazilian sweep. For me, I, I'm going to take Paul Craig. I'm just hoping with the Scottish surprise. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping the, you know, Johnny Walker. I'm hoping the Johnny Walker that I've grown to love so much shows up where he tries to do a flying Superman backflip and just lands right into, his, into Paul Craig's guard. Anyway, neither here nor there. But you wanted to touch base on a couple of up and coming fighters that, that you, are looking at that are fighting the next few weeks or a couple are on this card, right? Yes. So um, just kind of for fun to prepare for the new year, I made a list of, of like my top prospect per weight class that I wanted to keep an eye on. Um, two of them fought last week um, at the first card of the year. That was um, uh, Javid Bashrat and Jimmy Flick. And Jimmy Flick didn't do great. Don't worry about it. Javid Bashrat did awesome. Um, for this card, Jailton Almeida is a heavyweight. He's 17 and two. Um, and he is fighting his first ranked opponent. He's fighting Shamil Abdurahimov in the prelims. Um, that's going to be a really cool showcase. I think that he's going to make a really big impression. Uh, and, you know, again, a Brazilian, they gave him um, an opponent. They think that he can finish pretty uh, stylishly and win a bunch of fans when they're showing in Rio. Uh, and uh, Josiane Nunez, who is a women's featherweight, uh, she's going to be fighting Zara Farn, I think, who's been around. Um, Zara Farn has been around mostly to lose to uh, featherweights that the UFC's trying to market. She lost to Megan Anderson. She lost like to the new Roxanne Mataferi. Uh, first off, how dare you say that about <laughs> Roxanne Mataferi in this, in the cage wisdom loves Roxanne Mataferi. Every, uh, we, uh, we that's do? my statement. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> uh, Zara fair. She's, she's here to lose to Josie Nunes and get knocked out. Um, and I won't have any more Roxanne Mataferi slander. I stand, I stand uh, from by you, sir. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, the only other, the last one I wanted to touch on, um, you don't even need to watch the fight. I'm not, he's, you know, he's, he's fine. He's great. Uh, Nicholas Dalby, he's on the early prelims or the prelims. I think, um, I'm not even super in, you know, invested in his fight this week, but whenever Nicholas Dalby is on a card, that is an opportunity for me to remind everybody who's listening to this podcast to watch Nicholas Dalby versus Ross Houston. Um, that is a fight in cage warriors from like 2016 or something. It's a couple of years ago. Um, before either of them were in the UFC, I don't even think Ross Houston is neither here nor there. Anyway, uh, it is a remarkable fight only because it's just the bloodiest fight you've ever seen in your whole life. It's, it's, it goes so far past being gruesome. Uh, it circles back to silly and it's just a ton of fun. Um, I mean, it's it's almost unbelievable. There, there's so much blood. They're slipping and falling in it. Um, neither of them can stand up. Um, you can hear audibly on the microphone. Mark Goddard, the referee in the third round, uh, yells, "This is ridiculous. There's too much blood," <laughs> and uh, it's just a great it smells time. Like pennies. <laughs> it's you gotta <laughs> just watch it once. Um, if you have UFC Fight Pass, watch it on that. If you don't. Um, it's on, th it's in three parts uploaded to YouTube. If you just typed in Nicholas Dalby, Ross Houston, check that tonight. um, it's, it's absolutely worth your time. Just so much fun. Silly fight. Uh, have a blast. Yeah. Well, Hey Buck, thank you for that last part. It takes a lot of research to do that. 
going over the who are the, the top contenders are. And I think we're going to do a, a, an episode here pretty soon about what our, our big fearless predictions are going to be for you know the end of 2023. I uh, haven't done it quite yet, though. But that being said, want to say thank you to everyone for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to us drone on about our favorite subject, which is UFC MMA. Um, appreciate it. Hope everyone has a great weekend and we will be back for the next fight, which is in, is it in February or March? Is it March 4th? March 4th, 4th. I think. Yeah. That's the, the John Jones fight. We might do an extra special one on that one because that is going to be an amazing buildup to that fight. Uh, but that being said, without further ado, we're going to sign off. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend.